0: amen Amen. well good morning church i love that song for a lot of reasons not the least of which is it reminds me what in the world we're doing here (laughs) and that's a really really good thing this is a fun time of year because it's a time where we sort of shift out of summer mode which hopefully was good it's fun to kind of shed the normal routines and schedules and break out of that a little bit and do some different things and enjoy the fabulous weather in this uh, near paradise on earth we call Oregon that we get to live in. Uh, for the summertime, but this time of the fall, where kind of school year kicks off and we get back into our routines, is good because it reminds us, it reminds me, there's a reason that we're here. There is a Savior who has died to accomplish His Father's purposes, and that's what your life is about and my life is about, both here locally and in places as far away as Haiti and South Sudan. That's why we're here. That excites me. That excites me. I hope it excites you too. I do hope you had uh, a good Summer. I hope it was enjoyable and and refreshing and energizing. Mine was. Got to do some fun things this year, Uh, not the least of which was an extensive backpacking trip I took with a few guys in uh, Wyoming in August. Did some fly fishing. It was wonderful. I don't actually want to talk a whole lot about it because a couple of our elders are here who were going to consider going on the trip and couldn't go. And I don't really want them to feel bad about how great it was. So I'm going to pretend it wasn't that big a deal because it was awesome. <laughs> it was just incredible. Um, just being up there so far away, our, our campsite was just off to the right of this picture. I mean, I'm not going to talk about it, but I'm just saying, it was It was there. You're seeing this, um, you know, incredibly clear water, these gorgeous views, um, uh, sunrises, sunsets. Um, I mean, Brent, you didn't miss anything, really. I mean, it was just, but I'm just saying, like, you know, the fishing, we couldn't, we couldn't keep the dumb things off our rods. I mean, they were just jumping at our flies. Every time you throw them, the fishing was—it almost got annoying. I mean, the fishing was so good. Um, incredible views, great fellowship with brothers, but um, I don't want to talk about that because, you know, Brent and Roger might feel bad, and I wouldn't want them to do that, so um, it was an awesome trip, and I'm not going to tell you about it. That was my summer, uh, but we all love each other here, so it's okay right? Okay, anyway, we'll just, we'll just move on. <laughs> Speaking of high mountain vistas, how's that for a transition? Sorry, that was a little cheesy. We are looking this uh, fall, as we kick off the fall, at, at who we are, getting up high and seeing who God has called us to be as a church and how it affects the way that we live and the way that we're going to live this Uh, year as a church. We're actually going to begin with three Sundays beginning this morning on kind of our purpose and identity starting in John 15 this morning and see how that impacts who we are and how we live. The month of October We're going to be celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, along with churches all over the world, and so for five Sundays in October, we're going to be looking at the core uh, doctrines of our faith as defined in the Reformation, who we are in September, what we believe in October, and how that shapes who we are and the celebration of an incredible event historically and in modern day, and last but not least, going through the book of Galatians together, which teaches so many of these doctrinal truths in November and leading up to Christmas. It's going to be a great fall of reminding us who we are, so I'm glad you're here with us and hope you'll stay along for the journey. Our journey of discovering or perhaps rediscovering who we are begins this morning in John 15, which Sandy just read to us. Uh, This passage of Scripture is part of what Bible scholars call the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, That's a fancy way of saying several chapters, chapters 13 through 17 of the Gospel of John, that records the words of Jesus to and with his closest disciples the night before he was crucified and ultimately killed. In the course of these chapters, he reminds them, and by extension us who follow him now, Uh, who they are, and how they should live in the face of his impending crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension back to heaven. And he begins this discussion with them with this analogy of being, in, in chapter 15 at least, with an analogy of being a vine. Now, we're not 100% sure exactly where Jesus was physically at this point. They had been in the upper room where they had had the Passover meal together, hence this is called the upper room discourse. They may still be in that room, or they may have already started uh, their journey out toward the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was ultimately arrested, and then that started the series of events that led to his crucifixion. It's possible they were walking past a vineyard at the very moment that he seized upon this analogy to make a point when he said, I am the true vine. Now, that was not a new idea that Jesus just came up with on the spot. Uh, The analogy of God's people as a vineyard that a a landowner would plant so that he could harvest crops from it is an Old Testament image that crops up several times in the Old Testament. Pardon the pun there. And most of the time, interestingly, that this uh, imagery, this analogy is used where God's people are depicted as a vineyard. In the Old Testament, it's in a negative context. A great example of that is the Old Testament prophet Isaiah chapter 5, the first six or seven verses there of Isaiah 5. God calls the ancient Israelites a vineyard that he says he planted so that he would uh, see a harvest, that they, they would produce some fruit. We'll talk about what that fruit is in just a moment. But he says the problem is, he says to his people, you're not producing the fruit that I intended you to produce. Just as a landowner would go to all the trouble and the expense of uh, putting in the crops so that he could get a, a harvest, God says, I went to all the trouble to make you and to call you and to redeem you from your sin for a purpose. There's an outcome that I'm looking for, and I'm not getting it from you people. And so that's sort of the context of explaining to them why they're being Judged. That's usually the Old Testament context. They're a vineyard that's supposed to produce fruit. They're not doing it, and so that's why their life is hard, because God is judging them for failing to live up to their purpose. Well, Jesus picks up on this Old Testament idea where he says the disciples are now a vineyard and uh, the, he has provided everything for them so that they could produce fruit, but as is so often the case, the New Testament will pick up an Old Testament prophetic idea and put a new twist on it. Because now we're looking back at God's teachings in the Old Testament through the lens, as it were, of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so the new twist in this case is that the vines in the vineyard aren't actually God's people. They are Jesus himself. He begins in verse 1 saying, I am the true vine not just the vineyard, but the true vine, the real one, the the vine the way it was supposed to be. That's actually not the disciples now, that's Jesus. He is true Israel. He is, as we just sang, the true and better Adam. He is what Adam was originally supposed to be, but Adam sinned. He was what the Israelites were supposed to be, but they sinned. He is what you and I were supposed to be as God's people, but we sin. We have consistently failed to live up to that standard. And so Jesus says, I am the true vine. I have come to fulfill that purpose myself. And here's the point, just as we begin this, and, and what we're really doing here in these first few minutes is kind of setting the stage for this whole series, these next three Sundays, and then we'll spend the last part of our time together looking more specifically at the impacts of this for us today. Jesus says God had a purpose in making us and then redeeming us once we sinned and went astray from that purpose, and his purpose is that we would bring God glory. We'll get into that more in just a second. that's, That's the fruit. That's the outcome. That's the goal that God the Father had in mind from the very beginning when He made you and when He made me. And when He decided to redeem us after we had sinned. There's a purpose to my life. This means that God didn't make me for my benefit. He didn't make me so that I could be happy. God isn't there. His purpose in existing is not to arrange the circumstances of my life so that they're good for me. God doesn't orbit me, so to speak. It's actually just the opposite. I orbit Him. That's what this analogy of a vineyard means. People plant a vineyard for a reason. They go to the trouble and expense because they want a crop. And God says, that's like me with my people. I went to the trouble and I went to the expense. Great cost to Himself to redeem us. For a purpose, there's an outcome here and the outcome is my glory. That is your purpose, and that is my purpose. He expects his vines to produce fruit. And what this means, before we go any further, is simply this. For a biblically informed Christian, there is never any question whatsoever as to what the purpose of my life is. That is not a confusing thing for a Christian to answer. What should I do? Why am I here? What is my life all about? The Bible couldn't be more clear you are here to produce the fruit of glory for God. So what's that look like? And how do we do that in light of the fact that we consistently sin? Well, fortunately, uh, despite the failure of his people to produce the fruit that God intends us to produce, he's not completely done with us. In fact, in verses four and five, this is where it really gets interesting. Jesus is the means, he says, by which we produce the fruit that we can't produce on our own. Look at verses four and five again. He says, abide in me and I in you, just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And as if if it needed to be more clear in verse five, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing nothing. Now, in the context, that doesn't mean you can't eat, sleep, or breathe, or whatever. People do all kinds of things all the time apart from Christ. In the context, it's very clear. You can do nothing with regard to your purpose. You can do nothing to fulfill the purpose for which God made you. You can do absolutely nothing, not the tiniest little bit of contribution to that end, can you make apart from Christ. and you know you don't even have to be a professional like gardener or 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 grape grower to understand that if you're looking at a grapevine and you take one of the branches and rip it off even if it's already got fruit on it and you throw it down on the ground within a couple of days it's it's a goner right it's just going to shrivel up and die and any fruit that it would produce or has produced is going to shrivel up right with it and so jesus seizes on this analogy and he says you know that, that the fruit of a vine comes out of the very ends And those little branches, though, are attached to the core vine that's got the roots in the ground. If they're not attached to that vine, they die. Everybody knows that. He says, that's like you and me. That's what he says to his disciples. That's like you and me. Jesus saves us, the Bible teaches, by taking our place. And many times when we discuss that, we talk about him taking our place on the cross, which is right. He takes our place in dying the sinner's death uh, that I should have died, and he dies it for me in my place. He pays my penalty on the cross. In that sense, uh, salvation, according to the Bible, is substitutionary. Jesus substitutes. He takes my place. But you know what? Before he took your place on the cross to die for your sins, before he took your place in death, he took your place in life. And he lived the perfectly righteous, God glorifying life that you and I are meant to live, but never seem to quite be able to pull off. Not on our own. He takes our place in life, he took our place in death. Jesus is the true Son of God. He is the true Israel. He's what the Israel was supposed to be. He is the true vine. That's his point. I'm the one who steps in. God becomes man, and he lives the perfect life we were meant to live. So we then can only be saved by embracing Christ's righteousness, which he then gives to us as if it were our own, even though it's not. We have to be connected to the life that is in Christ in order to be alive ourselves and to fulfill our purpose. Hence the term he keeps using in this passage over and over again, abide in the vine, abide in the vine. What does that mean? We're going to unpack that in just a moment. The last point is he really brings us home down in verse 8. This is what allows us to fulfill our purpose. He says, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. That's where Jesus kind of brings this whole analogy of the vines and all this stuff into bearing fruit. It's where he brings it together and he brings it right down to the bottom line. The fruit God wants us to bear, the, the produce, the results, the, the, the results he's looking for from us is that he would be glorified. That simply means to display the excellence and the magnificence of God when God is seen to be excellent and enjoyed as magnificent, at that moment he is being glorified. The display of God's glory is the purpose of your life. That's why you exist. It's the fruit he was after when he planted the vineyard. So so how do I glorify God? I, I don't always display him. I don't always love him. God gets glory from my life, according to Jesus, when I bear fruit, which thus proves or demonstrates that I am his disciple, one who follows after him. So the bottom line, I fulfill my life's purpose by being a fruitful disciple of Jesus. What am I here for? That's it. That's it. This is more foundational than who I marry, whether or not I have kids or grandkids, what job I work, what my spiritual gifts are, how I spend my money. All of those things are simply means to an end. The end, God says for the Christian, is utterly crystal clear. Your purpose is to glorify God. How do I do that? By being a fruitful disciple. And that's really what we're going to talk about for these next three Sundays this morning and two more coming after that. We're going to work with that. We're going to unpack that phrase. What's a fruitful disciple? What's that mean? What does that look like in modern America? And how does it affect who we are as a church and what we do? Briefly, in a nutshell, what we're going these next three weeks is this morning we're going to unpack a little bit this idea of abiding in the vine. Fruitful disciples do at least three things according to Scripture. They abide in the vine where we'll be this morning for the rest of our time together. They grow into maturity. We'll talk about what that looks like and how that happens next Sunday. And then last but not least, they make other disciples so that the cycle continues and the process continues on. It's no accident that Jesus uses uh, an agricultural analogy, uh, crops bearing fruit and then ultimately reproducing more crops because there's a cycle built into that that makes his point uh, Donnie mentioned earlier the uh, feeding program in South Sudan. Uh, this is a picture right off the SEA Partners website of one of the demonstration farms, I believe, and one of the young men who planted uh, maize, essentially corn, and you can see it all growing up behind him. Well, you get to a place like South Sudan where there's so much instability and so much poverty, which is ridiculous, by the way, because you could, you could throw seeds out in the grass and sneeze on them and they would grow. The place is incredibly fertile. But there's so much just physical and unrest and, and, and war and so on that famine's crazy because people don't grow. And they, they just they get so short term in their thinking. If I have food today, I eat it. If I don't, I go hungry. Like that's it. I mean, and it's, it's very difficult to break that mentality and that cycle with people who are just literally trying to survive day in and day out. So, one of the challenges you do when you're trying to teach people in a context like this uh, to feed themselves is you not only teach them to take some seed and plant it and grow and tend the crops so that there will be. Uh, fruit there would be crops so that their families can eat but ideally you teach them to go a little bit beyond that to grow more than they need so that they can sell the surplus and earn money for other things like clothing and other basic necessities but ultimately the process isn't done there not even when there's a full field of crops that are harvested and my family has food and we even have some extra income coming in to handle other needs but ideally you try to teach them to think beyond today and this season to take some of the produce and save it and not eat it and not sell it so that they can replant it for the next year so that you don't just teach somebody to feed themselves for one week or one season but that you teach them to create a sustainable source of food for themselves and their families That's the process, and that's why God uses an agricultural analogy to describe what He's trying to do with us, His people. Jesus is not just interested in your life, He's not even just interested in one church like ours. He is after an entire sustained movement of people from every corner of the world and every ethnic background seeing and savoring his glory forever, that's the point. And that's why you and I exist. We're part of that chain, to stay connected to the vine, bear the fruit that he desires us to bear, and then some of that fruit gets reseeded as other people participate in that process too. That's where he's taken us. So with that in mind, let's spend the rest of our time this morning kind of drilling down a little bit into that first phrase, "abide in the vine," is the phrase Jesus keeps using over and over again through this passage. What I want to do for the rest of our time together is, is talk a little bit about what that means and what that looks like on a much more practical level, because it's not that mysterious. In fact, there's at least three things in this passage that um, guide us to recognizing what it means to abide in the vine. It means at least three things that are very clear from this passage. So we want to get into those now. Just before we get into those three things of what abiding in the vine means, I need to point out one important thing that's going on here. There's, there's an assumption behind Jesus' words in this passage. Um, it's probably better to call it a presupposition. He's presupposing something. What he's presupposing is that the people who are hearing his words are already Christians. He's presupposing that they're already Christians. Because whatever it means to abide in the vine or stay connected to Jesus, those mean essentially the same thing. Whatever that means, and we'll talk about what that means in a moment, but whatever it means, it presupposes you already are connected to Jesus. And in the context of John 15, that made total sense. Because these words were originally directed at his disciples. These were uh, men who had given everything to follow him. They had already embraced the salvation that was in Christ, and they showed it by living lives of, of service and sacrifice where they had abandoned all to follow him. And within that context, he says, okay, now what you need to do is stay connected to the vine. But it's important to point out that this is a presupposition because it's very easy in a country like ours where there are lots of churches and there's still a lot of Christianity kind of stuff out there in the culture, It's very easy for modern Americans to simply assume I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because because I believe in God. I'm a Christian because I attend that Baptist church and they all sound like Christians. And that's where I go, so I must be a Christian too, right? And And I go there because I want to. I mean, nobody's making me go. I want to hear this stuff. I want to be part of it, so I must be a Christian. I identify myself as a Christian, therefore I am one And that's a dangerous assumption. And it's dangerous at the very least, if for no other reason, because it presupposes that I am the one who defines what it means to be a Christian for myself. It presupposes that my religious beliefs are a matter of my own personal taste. And I'm the one who who I'm the only one who really has the authority to determine whether or not I'm a Christian. Somebody asks me that question, and I say yes or no. Nobody else can say that for me. I'm a Christian or I'm not, according to my assessment of my own beliefs. But that whole mindset, that whole idea, while very popular in our culture, is not coming from the Bible. The Bible actually paints a very different picture about how one becomes a Christian. It says Christ is the one who gets to decide what a Christian is and how you become one. Because after all, a Christian is a Christian, a Christ one. The New Testament term for it often is disciple, one who is a follower of Jesus. That means Jesus himself determines what it means to be a follower. And the Bible is very clear. It's totally unambiguous as to what constitutes becoming a Christian. Briefly, it says that to become a Christian means to repent of my sin. And by the way, that's sin as God defines it, not sin as I define it. He's explained in the Bible what sin is and what it isn't. And when I agree with him about sin, see it in my own life and repent of it, I've taken my first step toward becoming a Christian. More than that, it means to embrace the substitutionary salvation of Jesus that we talked about just a minute ago, wherein he does everything for me. He lives the righteous life I should have lived. He dies the sinner's death I should have died. And he offers those both to me as a gift. I have nothing to do with it. And in an utter devastated humility, I embrace that. That's part of becoming a Christian. And lastly, it means to become a disciple of Jesus. A disciple is an idea we're gonna talk a lot more about the next couple of weeks. In a nutshell, right now it means it means a follower. It means a learner. It means someone who has put themselves on a totally different path in life where Jesus is leading and I'm following and my life isn't about me anymore. I've adopted a new master. I no longer live for myself. I now live for him. To become a Christian means to repent of my sin, to embrace the substitutionary salvation of Jesus and to become a disciple. That's the Bible. And it is very dangerous for us to assume that we're Christians if, in fact, we've never repented submitted, and become disciples. Be sure that you talk to mature Christians that you know, or to some of our church leaders here, our pastors and our elders. We have these conversations with people all the time, and it is so much fun. Uh, Usually when people say, hey, I want to be baptized or I want to become a member of your church One of the ways that we do that at harvest is we will set up um, A time to meet with people who want to either be baptized or become members or both And one of the first things we ask people is so let's talk about how and when you became a christian Describe to us repentance. How are you seeing the Holy Spirit in your life? Do you understand the gospel? And how did you come to embrace and respond to the gospel? And while the details of every single person's story are different, the story is always the same for those that have truly embraced Christ. And what a joy to see people who were either they are christians but they've been a little unclear on how that whole process worked and they become clear it's like it's a lightning bolt that just energizes their faith or other people who thought they were christians but it's all so fuzzy they're not really sure they were and we say do you want to really be sure yeah let's deal with this right now what a joy what a joy well there's a presupposition in this passage that we need to see Jesus is talking to those who are already disciples, who are already connected to him. He now says to us, if that's you, stay connected to me. That's how you bear fruit. So what does it mean to stay connected to Jesus and to abide in the vine? Three things. I'm gonna tell you what they are real quick, and then we're gonna walk through them. First, to abide in the vine means to depend on his spirit. We'll go back through this. Secondly, it means to follow all of his teachings. Follow all of his teachings. Lastly, it means to find my life's deepest joy in him, not in other things. To abide in the vine, according to what Jesus says in this passage, to stay connected to Jesus means to depend on him, not myself, to follow him, not myself, and to be satisfied in him, not myself. Okay? Let's look at each one of those in turn. First, to abide in the vine means to depend on his spirit back to verses four and five we already saw this and particularly let me just call our attention to verse five again i'm the vine you are the branches whoever abides in me and i in him this is the person that bears much fruit it's pretty unambiguous you want to be the christian god wants you to be there's only one way to do it stay connected to jesus well what is it what does that look like well what it means is apart unless you abide in the vine you can't because apart from me you can do nothing absolutely nothing. Jesus is saying that just like if you rip that branch off of a grapevine and throw it off the side, it's just going to shrivel up and die. It has to be connected to the vine where all of the water and all the nutrients and all of the life comes from. In the same way, your spiritual life is going nowhere. It's going to shrivel up and die and produce nothing unless the life of Christ and his spirit is flowing from him and into me and out to the edges of my life and producing the fruit, producing the results. I have to stay connected to him, which means depending on his life, his spirit, his power, to do anything of eternal value. On a very practical level, this means that what Tim Keller loves to call self-salvation is out. There's just no room for it in a relationship with Jesus. If, if there's absolutely anything that I contribute to, To my salvation in my heart whether i'll admit it or not at that very point i'm not staying connected to jesus Do you see how the analogy works? If I want know what it means to be connected with Jesus, one of the first places to start is to say, where am I depending on and relying on myself, my discipline, my wisdom, my strength to do things for God rather than depending on Him? Because wherever I'm doing that, I'm not connected to Jesus. Wherever I'm total dependence on Him, I am connected to Jesus. That's what it means to abide in the vine. The Apostle Paul picks this theme up in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, when he says... Uh, by the way, to a church full of Christians, people who are already supposedly connected to the vine, he says the same thing Jesus said. He said, actually begins by saying, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? What he means there is he's looking at a church full of Christian people who said, okay, Jesus saved me initially by grace. That, that was all him. That was not me. I'm not good enough to be saved. I accept that. It was all Jesus. Great. Now because I've accepted his total undeserved grace on my life, I'm now a Christian. Yay. Okay. Now that I'm a Christian, I'm going to go work real hard to be the righteous person I always should have been in the first place. I'm going to rely on my wisdom. I'm going to rely on my willpower to live the right kind of life. I'm going to rely on my love for God and the the energy that I can muster up to read the Bible and to serve him and to deny sin. I'm going to rely on my own discipline to beat sin in my life, all those kinds of things. I'm going to do this. And what he's doing here is he's pointing out the difference in mentality. He says, do you see how crazy that is? Your whole Christian life started as a work of God. It's only going to continue and grow as a work of God. And the more you step in, he's telling the Galatians, and start to do things on your own, the more you're just getting in God's way. And as Jesus would put it here, every moment that I'm depending on myself rather than him, I'm not connected to the vine. How often do you feel yourself tempted and determined to clean up your life and do things for Jesus? A lot for most of us, for me anyway. God is glorified when we come to him with open hands, acknowledge that we bring nothing to the table. I never did and I still don't. And then ultimately ask for his spirit to fill us and walk in the power of his spirit. And this becomes really, really difficult when you do begin to grow in your relationship with Christ because the Holy Spirit does invade your life. He starts to mess with your world. He starts to change your priorities. He starts to clean things up. It's a pretty awesome experience, but it becomes dangerous. It becomes dangerous in that we start to realize, hey, I'm a lot more cleaned up than I used to be and I start feeling good about where I was at, where I am at in relation to where I was before. I do have better habits, I do have better disciplines, I do live a more righteous life than I used to live, and we start to become comfortable with the fact that I'm a more righteous person than I should. Sometimes this is really clear in our thinking, most of the time it's very subtle, we don't even notice we're doing it ourselves. But remember, Jesus reserved his harshest words for his most religious, his most overtly religious hearers because they were the ones who were the most likely to say, I've got it all together because I know the right answers and I've got the discipline and the willpower to follow them and my lifestyle proves it. And that makes them almost impervious to the message of grace. They don't think they need it. Every single Christian is in danger of the same thing. We walk in the power of His Spirit and we follow Him in total dependence. To the moment I'm doing that, to the extent that I'm doing that, I'm following Jesus and sometimes you even hear his word in the voice and it's really awesome (laughs) Aren't cell phones wonderful Sometimes okay How do I know i'm walking in the power of the spirit when i'm relying on his strength if i'm relying on myself I'm, not walking in the power of the spirit. That's the negative way to put it Here's the positive way to summarize this point staying connected to jesus means Living in total dependence on his righteousness and his power not my righteousness and my power Wherever I'm doing that, I'm staying connected to Jesus. Wherever I'm not, I'm not. That's the first thing. Second thing, staying connected to Jesus means following his example and all of his teachings in every area of life. Verses 9 and 10, he goes on and says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Stay there. Okay, great. How do I do that? He tells us, verse 10, If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. He tells His disciples, those who would be His followers, to obey everything that He's taught. Everything. All of it. The popular stuff and the unpopular stuff. The warm and tender teachings and the harsh reality teachings. And if you read enough of Jesus, you realize there's a whole lot of both in what he said. But he says, you learn and you love and you live every one of my commandments. That's what you do. And we're actually gonna talk more about that over the next couple Sundays. So I wanna go over this point fairly quickly and get to our last point. Let let me just say this much about this. What this means is that, uh, by way of direct implication, is that if I'm a Christian, the Bible and what God has said in it is my supreme authority. That's one of the key marks of a disciple of Jesus. His written word, as recorded here, is the supreme authority of my life. Not kind of taking them and twisting them so that Jesus' words could mean something different, or did he really say, or does this really mean, but looking within the context of what he said, interpreting it correctly, and following it, whether I like it or not. A disciple says, you are in charge. And of course, we're battling this temptation as Christians all the time. Every time I'm tempted to lie, to cover up something that I did, and I don't really want it to get out, if I lie about it, maybe I can deflect attention, and it's not that big a deal, because after all, it's just a little white Lie, right? I've told white lies. You've probably told white lies. I can't remember the chapter or verse that describes in the Bible lies having a color. Where do we get the idea of a white lie? We got it from our, our, our seemingly limitless ability to justify and excuse and to rationalize our behavior. And every moment I'm justifying my behavior over and against what God has taught, I'm not following Jesus' commandments. And at that moment, I'm not connected to the vine. You see? Every time we try to justify or rationalize any sort of immoral behavior, I know I shouldn't have been looking at porn tonight, but I've been stressed and it's been busy. I know I treated him harshly. I know I treated her unfairly. But after all, I've been in a lot of pain, and come on, nobody's perfect. The the list of, of possible excuses is virtually endless. When God has said it's wrong, it's wrong. When he said it's right, it's right. If I abide in the vine, I'm following all of his teachings. We battle this when we're tempted to divorce our spouse, and we don't have any biblical grounds for doing so, but our culture says, get out of the marriage. You don't need that in your life. Move on. We battle it every time we seek to define our sexuality according to what we feel rather than what God clearly says. Again, the list of possible applications is almost limitless. But you see the point? Jesus says, obey everything I've commanded. But, but the main point I want us to see here is how closely within this passage Jesus connects the idea of obeying his commandments with his love for us. Did you notice that? The main um, uh, command, the main uh, instruction in verse nine is abide in my love. I already love you. And again, he's assuming that you're already a follower of Jesus. So he says, you've already experienced my love at some level, so stay there. Stay there, stay in my love. God loves you, stay in his love. Oh, that sounds great, wonderful. How do I do that? Obey everything I said. Back up one chapter, John chapter 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now here in chapter 15, verse 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love for you. If you love me, you obey my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love for you. There is this love relationship between the Father and his people, between the Savior and the saved. That is the essence of our salvation is this relationship of love with Jesus. And he says the experience of that love is you keep my commandments. He ties the two together. There's only one way of of understanding what's going on here and that is to recognize that the love of Jesus and following or obeying Jesus are two sides of the same coin. Because at every moment that I'm tempted to disobey Jesus, especially when I realize I'm disobeying, I know this is a sinful choice. I'm tempted to make it anyway. And at that moment, you know what's really going on in my heart as a Christian is I don't believe God has my best interest in mind. I would probably never say that, that overtly, but that's what's really going on. I don't believe he has my best interest at mind. I want or need or feel the desire for this, and God says you may not have it. Now, at that point, there's only one of, of, of two possible explanations for what's going on here. Either Jesus doesn't love me. There is something that I need or want or could really use. It would really benefit. It would be good for me. And Jesus is just saying, no because he's motivated by something else, but he's clearly not motivated by love for me. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that I'm wrong about what I need. Right? I think I need this. I think I want this. I think this would really benefit me, but maybe it won't. Jesus is telling us every command that God has given his people is motivated by his love for his people. So either Jesus is wrong, he doesn't love us, or we're not right about what we need. And we know that the first option cannot be true. It cannot be true that Jesus doesn't love us, if you follow the double negative. <laughs> that, that, that just can't be true. How do we know that? How could I say that so clearly and so definitively? The Bible has a very clear answer for that. How do I know God loves me? I, I haven't felt God's presence for a while. I don't feel his spirit. I, I've got prayers that have gone unanswered. I'm fe- how do I know God loves me? The Bible never says you'll know God loves you by how you feel. Sometimes you will feel his love, and that's awesome. Sometimes you won't, and it doesn't matter. You know that God loves you. How can I know that God loves me when I don't feel it? The Bible has a very consistent answer. Look at what he did. Look at the cross. Jesus says there is no greater love than that one would lay down his life for his friends. And this is the night before he was about to lay down his life and go to the cross. God demonstrates his love for us, the Bible tells us, in this. While we were still sinners, totally undeserving of God's love, he died for us. There is no way you can conclude rationally There's no way that makes any sense at all that you can conclude God doesn't really love you, especially in those moments when he says that thing that you think you want or need, I'm telling you no. But God, that feels so harsh. You don't love me. Yes, I do. Look at the cross. I went to the cross. I laid down my life for you. So yes, I love you. Him not loving us is not an option. So the only other option then is that maybe I'm not right about what I need. You see, the bottom line is this. When I say I love God, but seek to justify choices that are contrary to his clearly expressed teachings. At that moment, I'm not abiding in the vine. That's the negative way to put it. Let's put it positively. Staying connected to Jesus means learning, loving, and living all of his commands by the power of his Spirit. So what does it mean to be connected to Jesus? First of all, to rely on his power rather than mine. Secondly, to obey all his commands by the power of his Spirit. Lastly, to find my greatest joy in him not in circumstances. Verse 11. He says, All these things I'm telling you so that my joy, the joy I experience, may be in you and that your joy may be full. Complete. It's as if he's picturing our lives as an empty glass that we're always trying to fill with whatever, pick your word, happiness, joy, satisfaction. And, And you're able to pour some things in there that feel pretty good for a minute, but they never really fill the glass completely full, you know? If I'm single, sometimes I think if I'll get married, then I'll be happy. If I'm married, sometimes I think if I was single, I would be happier. <laughs> you know, poor people think if I just had more money, then I would finally be happy and more financial security. And rich people think if I just had more money, and I'd be happier, right? I mean, it's just on and on and on. You never get the thing quite full. And Jesus says there's one way to get the joy glass completely full to where it's, it's just done. There's no more joy you can add to it. And that's when you experience the joy that I have. That's what I'm trying to give you. That's what I'm trying to give you. Now think about this. This is, this is insane. Remember the context here. Jesus is sitting here talking to his guys with a straight face about having joy that has totally unbounded no limits the very night before he was going to be arrested, whipped, beaten, tortured, humiliated, crucified, and suffocated to death. And he's talking about joy? Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. You see, pain and fear of loss are powerful diagnostic tools for a Christian because they show where our joy really is. The thing you love the most is the thing you fear to lose the most. So if you really want to know what you love the most, just look at your fear. Look at your fear. What do you fear to lose? the most when we fear the loss uh, fear um loss or the experience of loss when that kind of fear takes away my joy it shows me that whatever has been lost or might be lost is what my joy is based on jesus was about to lose his health he was about to lose his comfort he was about to lose his life itself and by the way make no mistake he knew it he knew it This was just minutes or maybe at the most an hour or so before he was in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating blood as he's pouring out in anxiety and stress the prayer to his father. If there's any other way, let me not have to go through with this. This was no Zen moment for Jesus, okay? And and I'm only half kidding when I say that. I'm actually serious. This This is a very different, the the, the Christian idea of joy is night and day different than the Eastern idea of joy that you find in religions like Buddhism and other, where it's this idea of just, I'm so disconnected, I'm so balanced, nothing is affecting me. And then I'm in that perfect state of nirvana. That is not at all what's happening here. When Jesus talks about joy, he is incredibly conscious of the painful circumstances of his life. He's got so much anxiety, he can hardly contain himself at the fear of what he's about to go through. And yet, it did not rob his joy. Even his own suffering and death did not rob him of his joy. There's only one way to explain that. There's only one way to explain that. His joy didn't come from his health, his comfort, or even his life, all the things he was about to lose. And the Bible is explicit about this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us that Jesus endured the ordeal of the cross for the joy that was set before him. He would rather be with the Father and having fulfilled his will and suffer than not suffer and be without the Father. Because as much as he didn't want to suffer, and who would, his joy was not rooted in his comfort or his security. And he says, that's the joy I want you to have, the very joy that I experience. John Newton was the captain of a British slave ship in the 18th century. He made an entire career, at least for several years of his life, out of perpetrating colossal amounts of atrocity on thousands of innocent human beings, including deprivation, abuse, torture, murder, not to mention profiting from the deliverance into slavery of the people who survived the slave ship crossings. After years of this wickedness, Jesus got a hold of Newton's heart and radically changed his life and his destiny. He repented of his sins. To make a very short version of a very long story, he lived out the rest of his days. He ultimately ended up serving God as an Anglican priest. He became a preacher. And he ultimately contributed to the eventual end of the British slave trade. He also penned probably the best-known hymn of all time, Amazing Grace, in which he wrote, among other things, I once was blind." but now I see. You know, the interesting thing is he lost his sight in his old age. He went blind. So humanly speaking, he got that exactly wrong. He once could see and then he was blind. But he says, no, (laughs) you've got to understand something more important. I once was blind because that's what I lived for. And now I see. Here's the bottom line. John Newton would rather be blind with Jesus than to see without him so he could lose his sight and still retain his joy when i'm fearful when anxiety is robbing me of my joy i'm not abiding in christ because i fear the loss most of what i treasure most and i cannot lose christ so that's where my hope and my joy comes from i will never lose it even though i can go through pain and anxiety And when I go through difficult circumstances like Jesus did and still retain my joy even though I'm honest about the fact that this hurts and I don't like it and I would love it if it would go away but it has not rocked my joy and that very moment is God glorified because I am displaying how worthy he is. You can lose everything have Jesus and it's still enough for you. Just look at me. I don't need to be married. I don't need to have grandkids. I don't need to be rich. I don't need to be healthy. I don't even need to be alive to be happy. I could lose it all and I've still got everything. So, put it in the positive sense. I am abiding in the vine. Staying connected to Jesus means finding my ultimate joy in him. Let's pull this all back together. Fruitful disciples abide in the vine. What does that mean? It means three things at least. It means to depend on his spirit rather than myself. It means to obey all his commands rather than deciding for myself. And it ultimately means finding my joy in him. Rather than in my circumstances at every moment to whatever degree i'm doing those things i'm staying connected to jesus to whatever degree i'm not i'm not And so jesus has told us what staying connected to him means and church that is our calling This year we start by asking one another and ourselves. How am I staying connected to jesus? How can I be more connected to jesus that my joy may be complete in him? He might be glorified in me because of the fruit that is born in my life We'll talk more about that in the coming couple of Sundays. Right now, speaking of vines, we have an opportunity to celebrate communion together. Twice a month here at Harvest, it's our custom to come to the Lord's table, as he told us to do, and partake of the bread and partake of the cup in memory of his sacrifice. And what I want us to do as the ushers head back and prepare uh, the communion elements and the worship team, why don't you guys go ahead and come on up here. They're going to lead us into our time of communion. Let's approach communion specifically this morning as a church as the corporate declaration together that Christ alone is enough. We're going to have a moment of of time to just kind of uh, ponder and think. The ushers are going to come down here in just a moment and distribute as you stay in your seats. They'll distribute the bread. Go ahead and take one of the pieces. Hold on to it until everybody has received. And we're going to give you some, some time to just reflect. There'll be music playing quietly in the background. I encourage you to use that time to think and to pray and just to come to your Savior acknowledging, Lord Jesus, there are so many places I don't abide in you. I want to be done with that. I want to repent of that and help me to live for you wherever God has spoken to you this morning. And then as we participate in communion, let's do it together as a declaration that he is enough. Let me just say one other thing about the Lord's table. This is for disciples of Jesus. If you are a Christian, you've repented of your sins and embraced the salvation that is in Jesus Christ, then you come to the table. You eat communion with us. If you've not made that decision or if you're not really sure, I encourage you to just let the communion elements pass by without taking them. That is totally fine. We want you to feel totally comfortable with that because we are. But as a church family, we are going to partake this together because when you take this, the Bible says you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. In other words, to participate in communion is to say, I'm a Christian. And I banked everything on Jesus. So I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward now. They're gonna distribute the uh, the bread. Go ahead and hold on to that until everybody's received and then we'll take it together in just a moment.